I'm not pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. So using my home time to talk with people of Magic's past and present about sets we made. So today I have Aaron Forsyth, and we're going to talk about the making of Magic 2010. Hey, Aaron. Hey there. Okay, so this is your baby. So uh, let's go to the very beginning. How, how did the idea to make Magic 2010 come about? Um, well, there's the kind of printed version of that story, but I guess I can tell a little bit more of the behind-the-scenes part of it. Um, so Elaine Chase was the brand manager of Magic back in those days, and let's see. So the we, ninth edition had come out a few years before, and the cool and you know this is back when corsets the the nth edition corsets were all reprints. And when ninth edition came out, it came out in Russia for the first time. We released a corset or a magic set, I think, in Russian for the very first time. And so that printing of ninth edition was black bordered, whereas all of the rest of ninth edition in every other language was the normal white bordered corset that we've been doing for years. And the Russian version of the set sold incredibly well, you know, to, you know, obviously in relation to how much we expect Russian product to sell. Um, so when it came time to figure out what to do with 10th edition, um, Elaine was like, let's just make the whole set black bordered. It's 10th. It's a big milestone for the core set. Um, and so 10th edition was printed all black bordered, uh, the first core set since beta that had been done in all black borders. And so it was like, okay, and whatever we're doing for 11th edition, you know, we have to top that somehow. That's just always... Uh, of the hopes whenever you're putting together your product lineup is that each year will be a little better than the year before. And I was like, that's going to be a tough, a tough one to beat. You know, if we're just sticking with the same model, uh, we started off a little bit of black border and went to all black border. What, what's left to make it cool. We had already had foils in the corset for several editions now. Um, so that got me, myself and Jake Tice, who was another guy working on the brand team, we'd go out to lunch once a week talking about, should we just, is there room for new cards in the core set? Like that seems to be the the way to go to get this thing to uh, stand out post 10th edition. And that solved a lot of problems in my head. Like I, I've been on a like magic should be more resonant kick for a long time. Um especially when trying to teach new people how to play. Do we have card concepts that they recognize that helps you learn the rules? Because what the cards do gets, you know, what you imagine a, uh, a knight or whatever, uh, or a Pegasus does in quote real life. When you see it written out in game terms, that helps you learn those game terms and makes the game feel much more accessible than if we're inundating you with a bunch of creative concepts that you also are not familiar with in addition to rules concepts you're not familiar with. So I said, okay, this is going to be great. We can kind of remake Alpha using today's design sense, make some new, use some of the old cards that work great, um, but make up new cards to fill in all the gaps. Um, and that's basically where it came from. And that's pretty much exactly what we executed on. Okay, so... I know you put together a pretty high-octane design team for this set. Um, so for the audience, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. the design team was Aaron, who led it, Bill Rose, myself, Devin Lowe, Brady Damaroth, and Brian Tinsman, which at the time was 
most of the heavy hitters from R&D. Right. In fact, a lot of those people weren't typically on design sets. It was just such a... I remember talking with Bill, who was and still is the vice president of the whole department. Um, you know, this is a new thing. It's going to make a lot of people nervous. Um, are we sure we're doing it right? So that led him to be like, let's put my, you know, he wanted to be on the team. He wanted you on the team. Let's just get everybody that might object or have some concern on the team in the room. Brady was the creative director at that time, you know, in charge of all the art commissioning and names and flavor text. Brian was obviously one of our most senior designers. Uh, Devin was the head developer. Just like anyone who might take issue with doing this or, or what, let's get them all in the room, all on board, all working towards the same goal. Um, and, you know, it wasn't even particularly contentious. I think everybody saw the, the idea as a good one and, and worked hard to execute on it. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, that design team is pretty outsized, uh, for if you read through the card set, just how <laughs> like very vanilla and tame most of the designs in that set are. Well, one of the things that's interesting is. This idea that simple cards are are easier to design is just false. That like making a good, clean, simple card is actually pretty hard. That's for sure. Especially if you know um look at some of our recent sets, we've certainly been getting more and more wordy that simple cards are uh, you know, diamonds in the rough. Um a lot of these were not particularly inspired designs. It was just kind of reskins of existing stuff. Tons of vanilla and French vanilla creatures. Like, I think there's like the number of blue creatures in the set that just have flying and no other words is a, is crazy high because it was just like, what's a sprite do? What's a drake do? What's a uh, whatever an air elemental do? They all just fly. Um, and we just didn't put any other text on them. And I think that's great for an introductory product. Um, but the set does not have a ton of texture. Uh, and as we went through the rest of the series, M11 and so on, we, 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 we got a little more complex. So the, there's four, I just counted, there's four creatures that are vanilla, you know, vanilla flyers. Um, there's a lot that have like ETB effect. I mean, there's a lot of flyers that don't have, a you know, are virtual vanilla. Like once they come into play, that's all they are is vanilla. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't say those cards are hard to make or anything like that. Um, but it was a good starting point. Like as far as like let's reset everything. Let's start from the beginning again. Um, making a bunch of French vanilla cards with either revamped concepts or or cherry picking the best concepts that we'd ever done throughout all of Magic um, worked out pretty well. First, for the audience who might not know the terminology, a French vanilla. A vanilla creature has no rules text, and a French vanilla creature only has um, a creature abilities. Usually, evergreen creature abilities, but any any creature abilities technically. Right, like Sarah Angel is French vanilla. It has flying and vigilance. Yeah. Um. So let me let me tell you one of my favorite memories from this design team, uh, and I'm curious to. So each of us made a list of what we thought the optimized version of the color, like. Of the, we had to go through and like, okay, you could reprint cards. What is your perfect version of of each color through reprints, just reprints? Mm -hmm. And then we we compared notes on what the perfect reprints were. Do you remember this exercise? Yeah, I do. I don't remember anything I <laughs> would have put on the list personally, but yeah, we we did a lot of that. Just like 
start from square one, give, give us your ideal version of things. And there's a lot of, and then like, what, what concepts do we think people are familiar with now that they weren't familiar with in 1993 that we can make a very resonant card around and whatnot. And then let's fix some stuff like, um, you know, Savannah Lions was a card we had printed at rare for years. Um, but really that, that card is just not make sense at rare, um, anymore. So we shifted it down to uncommon and made it a soldier because there were soldier tribal cards in the set as well. So just, you know, polishing off some rough edges, um, and just trying to make the most resonant, simple set possible. Yeah, I know there were a bunch of cards that were like, we had a cool concept previously, but the card we'd made for it, it just wasn't a clean version of it. And we're like, okay, let's just do the better, ver the cleaner version of Concept X, you know? Yeah, and there's some really cool cards that came out of that. I think Acidic Slime might be one of my favorites. Um, so I... Gin of Wishes. Well, I just want to, as we talk about cards, I just wanted to yeah, yeah, say yeah. this. So Acidic Slime... Is three green green. It's a two two ooze. It's got death touch, and when it enters the battlefield, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or land. And I, right, I think the the idea there was that was top down ooze, right? That just it's a slime. How do we and make a slime? Slime from D and D or whatever, some sort of corrosive, non sentient ooze monster. Okay, yeah, I mentioned that Gin of Wishes was the other one. Okay, so Gin of Wishes, three blue, blue, four, four. Uh, it's a gin flying. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it has three wish counters on it. And then two blue, blue, remove a wish counter from Gin of Wishes, reveal the top card of your library. You may play that card without paying its mana cost. If you don't, exile it. And that was just literally like we're trying to make a, a genie. <laughs> right. It's a genie with three wishes. With three wishes, yes. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and, and the interesting thing was in this design meeting, which is a little different than some of the others, is we would come in and say, we really want the following thing. We want a gin of three wishes. And then, you know, we'd go out and we each design our own version of that and then come back and sort of compare them. Yeah, and there were even some cards that we, like, had a little contest for. I think there's a red Ifrit in the set. Um, capricious Ifrit. We said we need designs for... Um, a red ifrit. Like, what, Matt, what is the what is what would the the best execution of the red ifrit concept be? The card ended up being a little too uh, chaotic and and potentially downsidey to to really captivate people. But uh, I remember we do we just had like a dozen different versions that was hanging on the wall in the office and. People voted on the one they liked best, and this is the one that won. So I think, Greg, I think Greg Marks is the guy that came up with this particular design. So Capricious Afrit, real quick, is four red red, six four Afrit. At the beginning of your upkeep, choose target non-land permanent you control, and up to two target non-land permanents you don't control, destroy one of them at random. Right, so it destroys all sorts of stuff one-third of the time. It's your own thing, uh, or maybe itself. Um, yeah. And then there was... You know, plenty of just like renaming. This was just some, a big kick that I was on. Where like I don't, I did not think Master Decoy was the right name for that white tapper, so it got renamed Blinding Mage. I didn't like Threaten as the name of like a red, the red um, temporary steel card, so that got renamed to Active Treason. And a lot of these have stuck around. Um, Mind Control was the more fantasy name for the card Persuasion, which was the five mana, you know, um, control magic aura. 
um, just little detail stuff of just like this isn't perfect the way we have it. Can we can we make a perfect version? I think this is also where like divination showed up for the first time. Right. Um, yeah, it, it was... used to be called Council of the Soratami or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, that's not going to cut it for this exercise. Yeah, that was a card from um, from uh, Arcadian Masks, right? No, oh no, no, from uh, I'm sorry, Champions from Champions Kamigawa. Champions Kamigawa. And you didn't even know whether it was a creature or a spell. Like, uh, you know, because council can be, I mean, there's different spellings of the word council. Yep. yep. Um, I guess the most notable new card to come out of that set was Baneslayer Angel. Um, that was one of Eric Lauer, who was the, the, the developer on the set. I think mostly made up on his own. Um, knowing that we wanted to kind of reinstate Sarah Angel as an uncommon is it had been pushed up to rare at some point in the core set cycle, but it just was never good enough. Certainly not a constructed card for a long time. So we figured we put that back where it belonged at an uncommon. Then what would a mythic angel look like if Sarah Angel wasn't uncommon? And Eric came up with the. So I have a little, I have a little story. First, let me say what Baneslayer Angel is, and then I have a little story about Baneslayer yeah. Angel. Yeah. So Baneslayer Angel is three white, white for a 5 5 angel, flying, first strike, lifelink, protection from demons and from dragons. So the original version of it was flying first strike vigilance protection from demons and from dragons, um, and I really had a big problem. Like I, I didn't want to completely obsolete Sarah Angel. Okay, obviously, sure, yeah. it's obviously better than Sarah Angel, you know. But I felt like could we just not make it one hundred percent in every way better? So I convinced uh, Eric to change uh, vigilance to lifelink just just to make it like at least Sarah Angel didn't tap. You know that there's a slight reason it's not you know completely overshadowed by by that card so you will not be replacing sarah angel with bane slayer angel in your stasis deck or yes anything. yeah so <laughs> um so I, I did i did get him to make that one change um, um but yeah that card went over really really well people were super blown away by it it, it you know it it showed up and constructed a decent amount and uh it was just kind of a home run on all fronts yeah one of the the, the cool things about constructed is when we put protection from dra uh, dragons and demons on it, it was it was what we call trinket tax. It was more flavor that it was meant to be super functional, but it ended up really mattering in, in the environment it first got played in, which is kind of funny. Yeah, because Alara had some constructed dragons for sure, uh, so yeah, it did come up. Uh, and obviously, the most notable reprint <coughs> to be included in the set was Lightning Bolt. So how did that come to be? <coughs> So Lightning Bolt, real quickly, for those that don't know Lightning Bolt, is R do three damage to any target from Alpha. Yeah. If you don't know Lightning Bolt, I'm surprised you're listening to this <laughs> podcast, to be honest with you. Um, how did it come about? Well, it was... I, I definitely wanted to include you know, famous old cards people are excited about that may have... that, that had gotten kind of a bad rap in the meantime... But you know, may may end up being fair enough to include at least for one cycle through a core set, even if we weren't going to make them standard legal all the time. So we have like Birds of Paradise, Hypnotic Specter, uh, and Lightning Bolt, and it just it's such a beautiful, clean, powerful card. Um, simple as all get out but you know people have loved playing it since the, the first days magic ever existed and it's very resonant like it's lightning bolts a 
a spell in D&D. It's a super easy to grasp concept. And, and it's one of those cards people have just been asking for, why, you know, why can't you reprint Lightning Bolt? Why can't you reprint Lightning Bolt? I do think it is, on average, too good for standard almost always. Um, but Eric, again, who was the lead developer, was like, I will protect this. I get why you want to do it. It's certainly going to draw a lot of attention to the product and get people to pay attention to uh, this score set compared to others and you know maybe even re-engage some lapsed players who might want to come back now and play again once Lightning Bolt uh, shows up in the set. And I think it did all that. And we actually kept it around for M11 as well. Um, and then when we created the modern format, it just it, it benefited from those sets being legal and Lightning Bolt is you know, the most played card in modern. So um, it certainly is iconic and powerful and awesome. Uh, and I was happy to be able to to include it, to have it be part of you know today's magic as opposed to something that might just be relegated to um, the older formats or whatever. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it being as played as it is in modern is, is pretty awesome. Uh, it's just one of the all-time bangers of magic spells. Okay, so Lenny Bolt made it. What cards didn't make it? What cards did, got considered and didn't end up making it to the set? Um, I'm pretty sure Fireball is on that list. I like it for similar reasons. It has a long history in the game. Oh, no, it is in the set. It is in the that. set. You, you, yeah, okay. you that one. That one probably shouldn't have made it. It is <laughs> not, not an easy spell to resolve. Um. I'm trying to think of what we, we talked about counterspell we did um you know and, and counterspell actually came up in many different m set discussions for years um it, it has that similar simplicity plus power plus famousness appeal um that could you know do a lot of work to get people to to engage uh it's probably not as healthy as lightning bolt was um what else i mean swords to plowshares was talked about it was on a list. It didn't. It didn't take long to eliminate that one from uh, the running. Do you, do you do you remember any in particular? I'm trying to think. I remember. We, I mean, we uh, was this the corset we tried Ranker, or was that a different corset? Uh, we actually did print Ranker in a later corset. In a later corset, okay. Twelve or something like that. I know we talked about it for a while, and I'm not sure whether this is one of the sets where we talked about, it, and then like, we eventually did do it. Thirteen. Uh, yeah, we did do Ranker. And it might have been talked about here. I mean, there's certainly a fun, powerful card. Yeah. Right, here's. But, I remember a weird card we talked about. That, that it wasn't really a power level thing, uh, but we had some very serious talks about Prodigal Sorcerer. Of, you know, it isn't really a blue thing anymore. Like you know, but it, it was a fun card, and, and we decided that. It just added too much complexity to... I mean... Well, we actually printed the red version from Player Chaos in the set. Prodigal Pyromancer yeah. is, in, is in... But not uncommon, and, right? Not uncommon, right? Yeah. All those, those effects do tend to gum up games in Limited where it's just like you have... If you have got two of them, for instance, uh, if they were common, that would happen a lot. And then your opponent just draws cards that they can't cast, just keeps drawing two toughness creatures or one toughness creatures and doesn't even get to cast their spells. Um, so those creatures that can sit, permanents that can sit there and invalidate um, large numbers of draw steps 
are generally frowned upon. I, it is interesting, like how prodigal sorcerer being blue, which was you know gave gave blue an angle that it didn't otherwise have with any other cards, but in red it's kind of forgettable. You know, it just vanishes into the sea of ways to kill things in red. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that uh, one of the things that I one of the balances on doing sets in general, not just Magic 2010, but is this balance of nostalgia and then sort of simplicity and resonance, right? That yeah. some of the times, you know, you want to bring back things because people just have fond memories of them. And sometimes there's things that are just so clean and simple. Uh, and then that cross-section of the little Venn diagram, like what are the nostalgic things, but they're very clean and simple. And I know we, we, we examined a lot of them for this set. A lot of them are in this set. Yeah, another another big addition the set made to Magic is the cycle of <clears throat> dual lands, the M10 lands or buddy lands, like um, uh, Dragon Skull Summit. I guess is a good example if you want to read that one aloud. Sure. Uh, Dragon Skull Summit enters battlefield tapped unless you control a swamp or a mountain. Tap add black or red to your mana pool. That, that's as printed. Now we just say tap you know, add red or black. Right. Um, we wanted we wanted dual lands. We knew those were things players like. They're kind of an important thing to learn early on in your magic journey. That the you know you can build more ambitious mana bases if you get the right lands. Um, and a lot of the lands that we liked for constructed, both the pain lands from Ice Age, which do damage to you every time you tap them for one of the two colors, or the we call the shock lands from the first Ravnica. Which you can put into play untapped if you pay two life. Um, those life payments, we just figured, you know, we, we'd seen it over and over again that newer players bounce off those really hard. They don't have any, any interest in lands that hurt you because you have free access to infinite basic lands that don't hurt you. Why would I want to do this to myself? If they they overvalue their own life totals, uh, especially at higher life totals. So instead of trying to like play into that tension, we wanted to come up with what's what's a good cycle of constructed level dual lands that doesn't involve um, life loss or damage or anything like that. And it took us quite a few iterations to land on this one, um, but I'm really happy with it. We obviously finished the cycle later and have reprinted them a couple times, and they show up in tons of different formats you know commander modern now and again um pioneer for sure i, I love them so speaking of lands I, I, here's a story i remember from this set is we decided that what we were going to try to do for the basic lands is find our four favorite pieces of art like what were the what were the best plain art we've ever done and i remember we had like there's a lot of discussion in the pit about like what's the best planes what's the best island and uh um, I mean, obviously the art director had the final call on this, but but there was a lot of discussion about, like, what what is the all-time best planes in Magic, stuff like that. Um, and I know we spent a lot of time on picking which which of the basic lands uh, this set was going to have. Yeah, I think it has a couple new ones and a couple reprints. I'm trying to remember if that's how we did it. Like, it's got a John Avon one and a Rob Alexander one. I think we might have commissioned a couple, like, two new, two old, something like that. Most possible, but yeah, maybe. definitely a lot of care put into um, the land art. But I think beyond Lightning Bolt and Dual Lands and resonant new card designs, the thing Magic 2010 um, most impacted Magic with was the rules changes that went along with it. 
So let's talk about that. So what yeah. what 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 prompted the rules changes? Um. So I think sixth edition was the last major rules update that Magic had gone through, and that's when. Uh, gosh, you, you know, you'll have to remind me of what sixth edition rules did. You kind of unified. Sixth the edition stack. added damage to the stack. Right, added the stack. Added the stack. Added the stack. Interrupts and whatnot down to just the stack, uh, including combat damage going on the stack. Um, it, it was a good rules change. Like sixth edition did a lot to streamline Magic. Um, and that one was that one. Those rule sets were created with the idea that Magic was going to be a digital game at some point, uh, you know, pre Magic Online. And if we wanted to, if we wanted it to be codable, there needed to be a lot more cohesion to the rule set. Sixth edition did that. But between sixth and tenth, there was just like a backlog of little nitpicky things, um, stuff that popped up in our consumer research about where people got stuck and what didn't feel right. Um, some of the terminology we'd used. And, you know, some of the rules that were just extraneous and felt like we didn't we didn't need them anymore. And so, as part of the whole like rip the bandaid off and feel like we're starting over with Alpha, we said, well, here's the chain, here's our chance to to fix the rules up again. So here I'm going to list. I have, I have a list in front of me of all the changes that happened with Magic 2010. Um, this so, was this was very contentious internally as well. I don't want, I don't want people to think that like we all held hands and felt really good about this. There was a lot of there's definitely some uh, nervousness, uh, uncertainty, and whatnot. Uh, I but I, I'm glad we ended up where we did. Okay, so so probably the one that got the most uh, people talked the most about was mana burn went away. Um, so how how mana pools worked and and mana burn going away was a big change. Um, we labeled we labeled a bunch of things differently. For example, the term battlefield started in Magic twenty ten. Exile started in Magic twenty ten. Um, certain keywords like death touch and lifelink sort of got the premiere in Magic twenty ten. Um, we yeah, I mean, the exile. I think it just feels so natural now. It's just like it's always been there. Um, battlefield. I still think. Um, It isn't quite as natural a term or as necessary, but um, ETB has finally fully replaced uh, CIP. CIP <laughs> it comes into play, as it yeah. used to be called. Um, so I'm happy that the vernacular has fully adopted those terms in the uh, decade plus since this this set came out. So actually, I, I said mana. Uh, I said mana burn was the most talked about. It was not combat damage leaving leaving the stack was probably the most talked about. So, uh, in in sixth edition rules, uh, when the stack got introduced, damage was kind of treated like spells were. Um, and why did we change that? What what caused us to change that? Um, there was just a lot of cases where um, either where people would put damage on the stack and then do something, and and oftentimes with newer or less experienced players or players that hadn't played as part of larger tournament communities, they just would not believe, they just could not fathom that what you just told them was true, right? I block your 2-1 with my 2-1, and then I'm going to put damage on the stack and then bounce my 2-1 back to my hand, or sack it to some other effect, like a uh, something like a goblin bombardment or whatever, and kill another one of your creatures. Uh... You know, or like the mod, the mod fanatic is kind of the poster child. It's a R for a one one, 
that has sacrificed this to deal one damage to, to any target. And you would you'd block a 2-2 with a 1-1 Mog Fanatic, put the one damage on the stack, and then sacrifice it to do the second damage and kill the 2-2. Um, it made all those cards a lot more powerful, all of those effects a lot more powerful, but it was not intuitive. It just wasn't. And, you know, a lot of players liked it, and they felt really smart whenever they could pull off these tricks, but, like, over and over and over again, every time we teach somebody new or have somebody new show up at the, at the company that wanted to learn magic, they just could not believe that this stuff. And found it very daunting and frustrating, um, and just kind of came to the realization that it wasn't necessary for that to work that way, that you know, we can have the damage be dealt um, just in one quick motion. If the creature is there, it does damage. If it's not, it doesn't do damage. Um, yeah, and the other the, that was the main reason. The secondary reason, which I think was also important, is we actually thought it was better gameplay that you had to make a decision. Like, do you want to right, use your Mog right, Fanatic to kill tension, the 2-1? Tension. Yeah. People are like it's less skill testing now, but it's not. It's more skill testing. Right. If I block your Dark Confidant with my Sakura Tribe Elder, which is a 1-1 that I can sacrifice to get a land out of my library, I used to be able to just kill your Dark Confidant and get the land. But now it's like, which do I want to do more? Do I need the land or do I need to kill your creature? And you can you know, lose a game by making the wrong decision there. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of the higher level players saw that, just like, this isn't easier. It's easier to explain and simpler from a rules perspective, but the gameplay decisions are actually harder. Uh, another big change that uh, is we changed how blocking multiple blockers worked. Um. You would and that was kind of a necessary thing to go with the combat damage, not on the stack. We still wanted the defending player to have some um, ability to react to what the uh, the attacker was doing. So if we didn't institute the, the kind of order the blockers part of the of combat, it would be um, you block a 4-4 four, four with three two twos, And then if you have a giant growth, it doesn't, I'll just kill the other two. No matter what you giant growth, I'll just kill the other two. If the, if you didn't kind of put a step in there to indicate what, at what the attacker's intent was. Um, and that was not intuitive either. It was just like, well, I'm going to kill these. Well, no, if you said you're going to kill this one, that's the one I want a giant growth. No, well, then I'll just kill the other two. And it just was very frustrating. And it made those kind of damage prevention effects and things like that really bad in, in multi-blocking scenarios. So we had to add this. If there are multiple blockers, the attacker has to order them kind of in a row of how he plans to damage them down the line. And that took some getting used to. Um, people kind of held that up. It's like, see, the system doesn't work. They have to add in this dumb step. Um, but uh, hopefully by now it's, it's second nature and just, it makes sense why we had to do it. And it, it makes all the cards work the way they're intended. So I, I can see my desk from here. So I'm not too far from work. Uh, any final thoughts about magic 2010? Um, I, I thought it was just a great way to open up the door for us as a group to embrace more resonant designs and that stuff went on to influence i think how we did zendikar and astral and all those other really awesome sets that came after it uh, it gave the core set family of products uh, a lot more legs for the coming years um 
not endless. Obviously, we've stopped doing them for now, uh, and there's just we've just found there's better ways, like with Arena, to teach people to play than to create a specific product just for uh, you know newer people to engage with. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, all that stuff added together, it makes the set stand out a lot as one of the kind of turning points for magic that's um legacy still lives on today in various forms and um for as simple as as the cards are themselves it's a set that i'm so very proud of today so i did a, a podcast with uh, matt place that you guys can all go listen to uh just a few weeks ago where matt and i listed what we thought the 10 most influential magic sets of all time were uh, and Magic 2010 made my top 10. So oh, I, I feel like sort of the push of resonance, there was a lot of sort of things that said this is important that really sort of shaped the things that came after it. So um, anyway, just a, a, a little side note that I, I do think that Magic 2010 was, not just was it a good set in a vacuum, but it really sort of highlighted some things and stressed the R&D as a whole, things that were important that really much influenced all the sets that came after it, so... Oh, great to hear that. Uh, anyway, uh, I can now see my desk. So we all know what that means. This is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to make magic. So Aaron, thanks for being with us today. You got it. And all you, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.